Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, conspicuously not joined this week by regular co-host Jeremy Goldcorn, who, by the time your listeners, you are listening to this, will probably be cradling his newborn daughter, Viola Wuling Goldcorn. Congratulations to Jeremy. Uh, we are joined again today by Alexa Olson, veteran correspondent for the Associated Press, who has written extensively over the years on our topic for the week. Great to see you, Alexa. Hey, Kaiser. Also joining us is Evan Osnos, staff writer for The New Yorker. Welcome back to the show, Evan. Thanks, Kaiser. So this week, we're looking at the one-child policy. Regular listeners may recall that a few months back, we did a show focusing on the demographic time bomb that China faces from a population that's going gray before it's getting rich. This time, we're going to dive more deeply into the policy that's responsible for all the demographic challenges that China is going to be facing down the road, looking at the one-child policy from a number of different angles. It's been in the news a lot. Lately, of course, blind activist Chen Guangcheng, uh, who we've talked about at length in episodes past, always focused his activism on probably the darkest and most notorious aspect of the policy, which is, of course, of course, coerced abortion and sterilization. And in just last week or so, it's been the topic of agonized conversation across China's social media landscape because of a very disturbing photo uh, that was uploaded to Sina Weibo, a young woman named Feng Jianmei, uh, right after her forced abortion earlier this month, Ms. Fung had been unable to pay the, what do they call it, a social management fee hmm. um, that was required of her. I think it was like $6,000. Right? $6,400. $6,400. $4,000. $40,000. $40,000. $40,000. And, and the image of her bloody dead fetus, which I, I, I do not encourage anyone to look at, um, it, lying beside her on her hospital bed, it was seen by probably tens of millions of people um, just forwarded and commented on millions of times. Uh, but before we talk at length about the one-child policy, let's take a quick look at one other event this week in the news. Um, and because Evan's here, on Monday this week, an altercation involving an African man in Guangzhou escalated into violence and the arrest of that man. Uh, Evan, he was Nigerian? Is that, mm. is that I mean, as far as we know, there's a lot that's still being figured out, but that's the latest. Anyway, he apparently later died in police custody Police said that he fell unconscious, and then, in spite of multiple efforts to resuscitate him, uh, he he was they were unable to to, to bring him back. Uh, what followed on Tuesday were very large demonstrations by many Africans living in Guangzhou. Evan, like I said, you know, you've written on this. You wrote that terrific piece in the New Yorker. Do you remember what month that was, just for reference? Um, well, last I think year, it was right? December. No, it was December a couple of years ago. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, you, and you've been, uh, you spent some time yeah. in the African community in yeah. Guangzhou. So, uh, have you been following this story at all? I have because it does uh, tap into a lot of the dynamics that were so present in that neighborhood where I spent some time. I mean, that area, 
uh, is known in the African community as the promised land because they are, it's actually the name comes from this one market, the Canaan market. And there's obviously a lot of resonance to the idea that people are coming to China to try to find the promised land. Mm -hmm. To the local Chinese community, it's known as Chocolate City, Chocolitung, and that in some sense gets to the center of the tension there. There always has been, as long as this community has been there, and it just started developing about That's 10 years. because of the Ghanaian chocolates that sold there? Yeah. I mean, look, the fact is that there has never been in China a tradition of immigration. Right. There really isn't a kind of the, the philosophical equipment to bring people in and create the legal space for them, figure out that there will be neighborhoods. Essentially, what China doesn't have Chinatowns. And so it doesn't really have the way for people to get settled. And so what happened when this started forming about 10 years ago was that these African uh, communities started forming spontaneously. They were, you know, landlords were saying, well, I don't want to have any more Africans in my building and and so on. So on the local police um, were very aggressive in pursuing immigration uh, in immigration problems. Mm-hmm. So you had, I mean, the most vivid example that I remember was that the guy who more or less runs the Nigerian community down there, who has a kind of little mini unofficial embassy. In right, a main character in that story of yours. Yeah, he's a very there. interesting guy. He, um, uh, he told me that he spends most of his time going to hospitals to visit people with broken legs. And I said, why broken legs? And he said, because it's just a common phenomenon that when the immigration police come in the front door, everybody gets up and runs out the back door and jumps out the window. Oh, and so they get this, it's this, you know, the Guangzhou broken leg. So that's the backdrop under which this latest case is unfolding. And I think it's going to force some of these questions to be brought out more acutely. For instance, how is China going to legally accommodate people who have come here in search of a better life? That's right. Um, now, does this have anything to do with the ongoing Sanfei campaign? It definitely does. I mean, a few years, that was the first time I ever heard the term. Sanfei Renyuan is the name of a foreigner who has violated in some way the three, what is it? They're, uh, they're, it's illegal to work, illegal to live, and illegal to do something else. Like, right. I think it, it's like if they've overstayed their visa, if they're on uh, working on a non-work visa, or yeah, if they I think don't have it, yeah. a residence permit. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's what it is. So these guys were all classified as Sanfei. And um, I don't know if this particular case is actually a response to that. I think this, from what we know so far, it seems like this particular case has actually began with a dispute between um, between a passenger, a Nigerian passenger, and the driver of a, of a taxi or a moped. Um, but, you know, if it's going on top of this existing kind of cauldron of discontent and tension between the police and the local African community, I think that explains a lot of the reason why this got out of control. Right. Uh, of course, a lot of the, the usual suspect, the blogs that um, that follow online netizen reaction to major events like this, uh, they seem to all concur that Chinese responses to this have been overwhelmingly anti-African. I mean, in, in a, a really sort of xenophobic, even racist, flat-out racist way. Uh, which is really, yeah. of course, sad, and it contrasts with the the support. I mean, one can very, very easily imagine a situation in which somebody, a Chinese person, is wrongfully taken into custody and dies, uh, and with with the body not being returned. And I, I can, I mean, we've seen this. We have seen this. This very, very thing, uh, with strong and support, uh, without clear knowledge of the circumstances. But the, the the instinctive reaction is to support the the plaintiff in the case. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an ugly episode in a lot of ways. And I think what you see, I mean, there is just the simple fact is that 
the vast majority of the Chinese public living somewhere in China has never come in contact with an African American. Right, they don't have, the, like you said, the philosophical apparatus. No, to, to, it's just not. And so it, it, people tend to uh, sort of conform to their worst instincts in this moment. Right, it's a really unfortunate affair. Um, and we'll be following this as it develops. We don't really have anything new on this. Do you know if the today, if, if uh, this is being Thursday, Mm. If 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 the demonstrations have abated at all now. No, the one thing I would add on the subject, which is always interesting to me, though, is that the more that the African community gets to know the people in those neighborhoods, one of the things that always struck me, I would interview these people separately. So I'd interview the local merchants and I'd interview some of the African migrants who'd moved there. And what you discover, of course, is that each of them have very similar life stories. I mean, they're all migrants. Every single person in, in that part of town is a migrant. Uh, from somewhere in China or from somewhere in Africa. And then in a lot of ways, their biographies kind of rhyme. But um, there's just a lot of baggage they got to get through before they can figure that out. That's right. That's right. Well, let's move on to the main topic of this discussion. Uh, let's talk first, I think, about the historical origins of the one-child policy. We're all aware of Mao's attitude toward population. He actually was handing out awards left and right for uh, contributions to socialism to mothers of huge broods of children. In my own age cohort, I'm in my mid-40s, even among urban Chinese, it's not uncommon for my Chinese friends of my age to have four or five or six siblings. I mean, I know you know people who are lots of guys who go by Lao or mm-hmm. Lao or whatever. And, uh, so what was, that? what was that? Was Mao just contemptuous of Malthus? Um, it's funny. I was thinking about this today because um, on the family planning website, there's a press release about a meeting they had this morning at Peking University, and they were honoring the 130-year anniversary of the birth of this guy called uh, Ma, Ma Yinchu, who was the first person to really try and push in 1957 population control. Mm-hmm. And Mao ended up hating him. Yeah. He purged him. And for 20 years, he was out of the public eye because of this attitude, yeah, this idea. This so the rehabilitation of him maybe bodes well. Um, yeah, it's interesting because he was also, well, we'll, we'll talk about this more, but well, he no, was it, also it very, well, well it, it doesn't, it doesn't, because Ma Yinchu thought that China needed population control. Mao didn't. Mao right. thought, ren duo li liang da. Yeah. It's like, the more people we have, the stronger, the stronger we're going to be. Yeah. Um, Ma Yinchu didn't think so. But Ma Yinchu also was um, anti-abortion. Um, so he was his thinking was that we've got to make families smaller, but do that by having them marry later. Just mm-hmm. have fewer kids use contraception, mm-hmm. and you know, had he not been purged, things might have been very different in China. Um, yeah. One one piece that I I, I encountered today um, something that one of our our interns Rebecca unearthed in putting together some readings for me for the podcast. Uh, was a 2005 piece by Susan Green, Greenhalgh mm-hmm. in China Quarterly. Um, I've always contended that the one-child policy in some sense epitomized uh, the, 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 the scientific Chinese technocratic uh, approach to policymaking. That, um, and this piece, this piece by Susan Greenhall, makes the connection very explicit. She looks at individual scientists uh, who were the architects of the policy and uh, who had come mostly from the defense sector as basically all scientists were employed at the time in any uh, defense sector in the late 1970s and the early part of the 1980s as part of Deng's effort to very, you know... Right, after Mao died, it became okay to start talking about family planning, really, in a serious way. And um, apparently these people took to to kind of extreme, um, um, sort of to to their, their, uh, I guess, logical conclusion, or they they thought so, uh, the work of the Club of Rome. Yeah, the um, Limits of Growth. Limits of Growth, right, which was published in 1972. And they, they, um, I mean, you know, 
they tend to take an engineering approach to social problems, social engineering, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, so they basically were arguing that there weren't going to be enough resources for China and all of its offspring. So you had to take this kind of radical action if you were going to try to maintain China's growth. Right. Um, but that's, I mean, I, I think I, I would have been very, very easily persuaded of that when on my first few visits to China in, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, uh, I mean, I was just so utterly shocked at uh, the extents to, to which people had to go. I mean, you know, we would we would go to these national parks and climb footpaths, and we would see that every inch of soil was being used to grow food, and it, it looked like you know, there was this this real desperation to keep the population fed, and it was truly teeming, right? And uh, it would have been hard to convince me at that time. Uh, I was young at the time that uh, anything short of draconian measures would have been, um, you know, sensible in any way. Um, but but China is bigger now than it was then sure. by many millions. By of many people. many many yeah. millions of people. Uh, and I don't know. It doesn't feel that much different to me living here than it does living in New York City or like any big city. Okay. Um, so I, demographers say that that argument doesn't doesn't hold water. That, right. Uh, that it's not it's not how it's not a matter of how many people you have it's sort of uh, people management and you can be more efficient and yes it's important to you know not just you know grow and grow and grow and not control your population at all but um, if you if you sort of compare quality of life to your population it's not necessarily a direct, correlation. direct correlation like 30 years ago China had many fewer people than but you know like economic growth and quality of life has changed even though there are many more people now so is are there still people who would champion that idea though that there there uh, there is a carrying capacity that uh, population does still need to be pretty aggressively kept under control? Um, oh, has that yeah. has that has that side of the debate really kind of faded? I think it's still there, but it I think it's just not seen um, in such stark terms that there probably is a sort of limit to the capacity of the earth, you know, to accommodate people. Mm -hmm. But before when people were talking about countries and population, they weren't really factoring in things like migration, you know, which mm -hmm. changes things a lot. And also when societies get more affluent, they start having fewer kids. Right. And so there are internal controls that happen. Um, so there are different ways. It's not just, you know, the number of people you have, but um, the quality of life that they have and, and what sort of things are going to curb the growth. Perhaps we should try to do a kind of primer uh, in what the actual uh, workings of the one-child policy actually are. I mean, what are, what are the rules? I mean, in what cases are exceptions currently made? And is this decided at the national level? Is this decided at the provincial or the county level? So, Alexa, you, you've probably written more on this than any other reporter working in China, and, and so I defer to you. Okay, well, I'll start with um, a quote, well, a paraphrase of Wang Feng, who's a Brookings mm -hmm. demographer, and he, he compares the Chinese family planning policy to the U.S. tax code. <laughs> there are so many exceptions. Like, you, you can call it a one-child policy, and the majority of people in China are only allowed to have, they're only allowed to have one child, because it's around 35% are uh, subject to a strict one-child policy. And then you've got around 50, 52% who can have a second child if their first is a boy, is a girl. 52%? So, these are rural people? Um, for, the for the most part, they're rural people. Okay. And so, but the thing is, uh, that's not 52% of people who that can have two kids. That's if their first child is a girl. Child's a girl right. So it means you've got, I don't know, you've probably got at least half of China, they're under a one-child regime. 
Um, and then you've got minorities, and then you've got if both parents are so which only minorities? children. I mean, like uh, my, my wife is Manchu, uh, for example. They're not they're not allowed to have more than one child, but but uh, people of let's see, Koreans. Koreans are right. Uh, Uyghurs, Tibetans, Tibetans, right. um, Mongolians. The Miao, the Miao are allowed to. Yeah, the Mongolians are. That's right. Very interesting. Um, so, is the the uh, first child is a girl? You can have a boy. Is that by province? I understand that there's some provinces where that is not the case. Right, right. And then there's there are many provincial and even uh, you know municipal, depending on where you are. Um, there's a lot of fine print. There there's a different probably a different rule for every county you go to because they are allowed to um, incorporate some of their own. Okay, so yeah. the, the, you're saying that the best prevailing estimate of the total number of Chinese families under the one-child policy, the strict one-child policy, is only 35%. It's, yeah, 35.7 or something like that. I think like that. it, that's probably a lot lower than, than most people would imagine it to, to be. It's true, but also, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean that if you're part of that other two-thirds that you're having you as many will kids have as you want. Friend. It's right. not a part of your life, I think. But I, I, that, I mean, it's probably just worth mentioning for people who don't have a way to picture it. So what other experiments are going on right now in terms of relaxation of policy? What are some of the, the, the more prominent ones? Um, I, I, I did come across a couple just doing my, my scant research. Uh, for example, I, there was one, um, the Liang Zhongtang. He was a, an, a demographer from the mid-'80s. Uh, this I'm, I'm borrowing from a guy named China Mike, china-mike.com, who wrote uh, an article called, it, it was very useful, called One Child Policy for Dummies. And... Uh, Fitting that that description aptly, I I read. Um, he says that in the mid 1980s, this guy Liang Chungtang, who was a long time, long standing critic of, of the one child policy, uh, he convinced leaders to allow him to run a two child policy experiment in uh, a northern Chinese town, uh, in, well, I guess it's in Hebei, about 550 miles southwest of Beijing. Um, and Southern Weekend said that. Uh, over 25 years, the population grew actually more slowly than the whole of China, um, about 20% relative to China's overall 25% growth over 25 years, and that the gender ratio was actually in line with the natural gender ratio, which I think is just an equally important point to make. And, uh, Liang says, um, he, he was quoted, and I'm, I'm here quoting from this blog, it shows the government could have had a looser child, child policy, lower birth rates and slower population growth are as you were saying, inevitable results of economic development. Well, um, you've already seen it, too, in Shanghai is another place where they've been experimenting with it. And I don't know how much they're relaxing and how much it's subject to, for instance, different districts or what. But there is, I think, it's a recognition of two facts. One, which is a subject you've talked about before on the podcast, which is the demographic demand to change. Right. That. China, for the first time now, has more people over the age of 60 than it does under the age of 5. This is the first time in its history that that's ever happened. And that's a profound problem from a policy perspective because mm-hmm. it just simply means you've got too many old people who need to be taken care of and not enough young people to do it. Right. So that's on the one hand. But then there's four two one problem. Right? Yeah, exactly. And then there's the additional problem, which gets us into what was the controversy last week, which is the simple fact of the brutality of the policy, and how does that comport with people's lives now? So let's talk about that, I mean, mm-hmm. ab- about forced abortion. 
Well, maybe before you do that, I'll just follow up on what you were just talking about, the experiments with oh, different sure, policies. Yeah. Um, Gu Baotang, who's a very prominent uh, demographer here in China, he's here in Beijing, he's written a book about all the different experiments that have been done over the last 30 years, and it's called An Experiment of 8 Million People. Mm-hmm. And it's about the different pilot projects that have happened around China, not just that one that you mentioned, but there, there are multiple ones in big cities um, where they've been allowed to have two kids. And, and Shanghai, Shanghai is slightly different because what's happening in Shanghai is that they are – it's not a new rule. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an existing rule where if both parents are only children, they're allowed to have two kids. Right. That's another one of these exceptions. Is that prevalent? Is that only Shanghai? Are there – No, it's – I, I believe – I could be wrong about this. I, my understanding is it's true for Beijing as well. It's true okay. for, you know, many places. But what happened – Shanghai, if you look at the Hukou registrants, mm-hmm. then you've got a lower birth rate than Italy. Like they're 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 not growing at all. They're right. not they're, they're not, not I mean China's China's not replacing its population either. It doesn't have that it doesn't have that fertility rate. But in Shanghai it's very, very low. It's among the lowest in the world. If you're looking at Hukou. It's about China overall is about one point six it's or well there's a debate, but it's yeah, basically around one point five. The official number is a little bit higher. But demographers okay. think it's probably like one point five and replacement rate is two point one. It's two point one, two point two. Right. Um, but so on Shanghai, what they started doing is putting notes under people's doors mm-hmm. saying, you can have two kids, mm-hmm. like, go ahead, just have two kids. But what they're, what they're not factoring in is the migration again. Like sh- if you go to Shanghai, you're going to have a lot of two and probably three family or three kid families. But if you just look at the registered Hukou people, then that birth rate is going to be very low. Uh, so, you know, Shanghai is a very complex picture as well. Yeah, as I imagine it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the state currently of relaxation? I mean, have these new, uh, have, have, have things like the tragedy of the Feng Jianmei incident or Shen Guangcheng, have these things uh, sort of lit a fire to would-be reformers of the one-child policy at all? Have you seen sort of it being buzzed up now in, in conversations online or among policymakers? Any evidence for that yet? I haven't seen anything like that yet, but I think the the internet reaction was so strong and so interesting. Like the the level of debate that came out of that's come out of that incident is is something that really surprised me. I mean, I've been writing about the one child policy for many years, and I've interviewed many people about it, and I'm always surprised at. Uh, how sort of complacent people are and accepting they are of the policy. But the reactions that I saw online um, to this Feng Jianmei case are, are very different. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that first, about the complacency. I think that in, in a piece that you wrote recently for The New Yorker, yeah. you were talking about how this doesn't really, or it hadn't really gotten people particularly riled up. I mean, you, you I think there's a quote from you, you said, it's a sort of largely unremarked upon feature of life. Abortion well, there was itself. this, people had this strange relationship to the policy where, Personally, privately, people can revile it. I mean, really, if you talk to somebody who really wanted to have a second child and found that that was impossible, then obviously it's something that matters to them intensely. But on a, but on a broad scale, on a national basis, if you ask people, would you be comfortable having more competition for college admissions, for instance, or getting your kids into kindergarten, of course they are actively opposed to that as well. So there was this people, in a sense sort of suspended their activism on that front. But I think one of the things that you've seen since 
this case, since the Feng Jianmei case, which is striking, is not so much that the activists themselves have felt, I mean, I haven't seen evidence that the activists themselves are feeling like they're, they're going to make more progress, maybe. But what's been noticeable to me is that people who don't typically take a position on this issue have become active on it. So somebody like Li Daiyan, Li Chengpeng, uh-huh. who's a very active commentator on Weibo uh, out, in, out in Chengdu, I think, he wrote a post in which he said, this is Barbarous, and he said, "If there, if a state's going to conduct this kind of activity against its people, what else is it going to do?" Well, I mean, like, isn't, isn't there a little bit of? I mean, it's a little bit disingenuous. I mean, surely they know that this was happening. I mean, I, I'm going to go so far as to suggest that to have a strictly enforced one-child policy, you cannot not have a coercive element. I mean, it, it only makes sense. I mean, that's that's the ugly truth. That, but that, I think his his point is that this policy has outlived its kind of political usefulness. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think that the, the, all the, what all the demographers have said, it, 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 it makes an awful lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, I guess, and so I, just, it, I think it's, you know, you're right that there's an element of opportunism here, but it's, you know, I think what you've seen is this really interesting intersection between somebody like him, this guy who's got a huge following yeah, for what is basically a pretty liberal, sort of he takes on all kinds of liberal uh, progressive objectives, and he's now putting this into that basket because those things have, have aligned because he's got all these kind of essentially new middle class admirers and fans. And this is an issue that now speaks to them because it gets to what is the central nerve of their political lives, which is the question of whether their selves and their property will be violated. Hmm. Um, a couple of years ago, Pew, Pew Research did a survey and they asked people how they felt about it in China, and they asked people how they felt about the one-child policy, and 76% responded that they were supportive in, in of support it. Of one um, I think generally speaking, if you, like as Evan was just talking about, in theory, people are generally supportive of the idea of the policy. They don't like the reality of living with it day to day. And But I also think that there's a lot of, um, there's something like a, trauma fatigue mm-hmm. like in their daily life it's something that they really can't cope with thinking about right, and but then a, a picture comes up like that mm-hmm. and you can no longer put it out of your mind like you right. actually are able to visualize you know the results of and that i think there were two other elements that are really you can't separate from the actual fact of the one child policy which is that you have to remember this part of the reason why feng jianmei was subject to a forced abortion was because of her huko because of her re- household registration that's right which is also an issue that resonates so deeply with people. So basically, she was registered in another part of the country. And so even though she was living in this area in Shanxi and all of her friends had exceptions to the, to the local one-child restriction for various reasons, she did not have that exemption because she was still registered under what a lot of people consider to be this kind of antique system of internal passports. And so, you know, once you put that on top of it, it just made people even angrier. And then the fa- the last piece, of course, was the money because that got into the whole question about the gap between rich and poor. And sure. So you've got the confluence of these three oh, things, the Hugo system. It really was the perfect political course, storm yeah. in a lot of ways. I mean, and there so was, in response to this, and the official response has been now to sack or at least uh, – have they actually been sacked? I, the, the I, people? They, I, yeah, I think right, they've right. been relieved of their duties. Okay, right. Um, it does, they didn't make clear, and I, I really doubt that these three people lost their jobs um, just based on you know past 
reporting on similar cases where there have been forced abortions. Um, Chen Guangcheng down in Shandong, the, many of the cases that he revealed to the Family Planning Commission were investigated, and there were supposedly you know punishments. Right. But people don't usually lose their job for this. Maybe they get shifted to another position, or you know they lose um, some some income, or they are penalized in some way. This is just meant to placate the people paying for blood now. That's on, uh, that's on my read of it. Yeah. but Call I think the it's Wukan effect is to yeah, do whatever you can right. to get things to die down, but then. To go oh, back kind of, I would say there were more substantial. The commission also, from December, has a new minister. She's called Wang Xia, mm-hmm. and she just took over in December. And her predecessor is now the governor of Anhui, which is interesting for another reason because it's you know, only the, I think, second or third female governor mm. in Chinese wow. communist history. But wow. anyway, the current one, uh, Minister Wang Xia, she's also from. Shanxi. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, and she only recently came out of Shanxi local politics. So I wonder if what, what's happening, and I was surprised by the apology, yeah. the fact that mm-hmm. a deputy mayor went and apologized right, right, to right. Feng Jianmei, and also the, the relatively open media coverage of it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, maybe it relates to the fact that she's from there and had to kind of do her own face saving. Well, I mean, at, at the risk of essentially talking about, you know, the subject that is the subject of every podcast here, which is the power of the web on some level. Look, the fact is that seven years ago when I went down to see Chung Wong Chung's house, I mean, there were forced abortions going on there, forced sterilizations. And I remember talking to this group of people who were being detained in a black jail, and they were were up on the second floor of a building, and I was down on the sidewalk. And I'm shouting up to them saying, what are you up there for? And they're saying, well, we're held up here because our family members have run off to the hills because they don't want to have forced abortions. This was all happening. Of course, nobody in China knew about it. I mean, there was no way right. for people to know about it. Now, it was instantly everywhere That's on right. Weibo, and the government had to respond. There was no way they couldn't respond. Right. We've decided to stop food. apologizing for having to talk about sort of <laughs> netizen empowerment on every uh, podcast. So no need. I think no. that's it's you know fundamental to the story. That's yeah. right. It, it, is. Yeah. it, it is. It is. Um, it, 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 it raises the question of so how often does this happen? Um, yes, and that, that was my next question exactly. to you. Is exactly we, we don't know. But you've written but about other cases. Yeah, I've written about yeah. other cases in Shandong, Anhui, Guangxi, uh, Fujian. They do happen. Sure. But my I, my sense is from uh, the previous cases that when they when they do happen and when they're very late term and they're so egregious like like Feng Jianmei's case that they do end up getting some kind of attention, mm-hmm. like if it's from RFA or if it's from Bob Fu in the U.S. or some women's rights group, like the word gets out. And so the fact that we hear about over the last couple of years, maybe we've heard about late-term forced abortions in, in, the, re- in the sort of realm of, to, you know, a few dozen maybe, uh-huh. I'm, I'm hoping that that is not the tip of the iceberg. Okay. You had an interesting story, Alexa, once where you described this woman who ran away from forced abortion, uh, and she brought with her, if I remember it right, she brought a change of clothes, a knife, and her laptop. That's right. Right. Those three details tell you everything you need to know about this moment in time in China because, I mean, the fact is that she's a middle-class person with a laptop that meaning like that, uh, that what's on her on the web and what she needs to have access to is 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 urgent enough that she needs to have that with her while more with or less knife. running for her <laughs> life. Right. I mean right. it's a powerful combination and if you looked on the photos of Feng Jianmei's case this is a weird little detail but a kind of one that struck me was that 
it's taken with an iPhone. Yeah, the photo of the text message in which the local planning officials are threatening her with a forced abortion if they don't come up with 40,000 kwai. That text message came across to them on an iPhone. That's right. So I'm not sure you can have a population that has iPhones and also the reasonable expectation that they'll be subject to forced abortion. I don't think those two pieces are right. mutually sustainable. Right. <laughs> Well, an iPhone isn't worth $6,400, alas. Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's just that, that this issue doesn't work when you've got a, a middle class that's, that's wired together. Let's talk about not coerced abortions, just about the phenomenon of abortion itself in China. Um, um, Alexa, you've written on this as well. What's our best, uh, where is it trending? What are the numbers right now? Uh, how common is it? What are the average number of abortions that a Chinese woman undergoes in a lifetime? Uh, give us just some, some of that, that information. Um, the, the official Ministry of Health figures, I think, I don't know what they are for last year, but they're probably around. 13 million? Uh, well, I think the real figure is probably closer to 13 million. I think the reported figure is around 9 million. Okay. Uh, I could be, I'm, I haven't checked, you know, recently, but uh, when I wrote about this last year, I think they, the latest figures at that point were from 2009, and it was around there. And I, I don't think it's probably changed that much. Do you, do you know what that would compare to? Let's just assume that it is, you know, comes in around 10 million. Right. How does that compare to the abortion rate in the United States? Um, in the United States, I think it's it's per not capita. that it's not that dissimilar. Okay. Basically, um, the highest abortion rates per capita are in Eastern Russia, Europe, right. um, Russia, uh, Vietnam. For a long time, had the highest in the world. Um, China, per capita, not. It's it's sort of in the middle. I think it's 20 something per thousand. In, in America, it's certainly something that, that um, is incredibly, I mean, there are no issues that are more politically polarizing, probably. Right. Uh, what about in China, Evan? No, that's the thing that's always been, I think, baffling somewhat to Chinese observers of American politics is that it's, it is not a political litmus test in China. At least I've never known it to be one. I don't, people, people don't, don't sit around on, and right. judge essentially each other's political uh, position based on that issue. And so that's always been a, a, one of the funny ways in which American politics rubs up awkwardly with Chinese politics because Americans sometimes look upon the Chinese one-child policy and they see it as an abortion issue, quote-unquote. Right. Um, they see Chen Guangcheng as, for instance, an abortion activist, as he's often described now and in, in sometimes in the West. Which, and many people assume he's Christian because which, of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's not, right. Right. And he's, he's not, not Christian, and right. I think... One of the things that's curious about this is that actually I think he has a lot more political DNA that is closer to an American liberal position than it is to an American religious right position in the sense that if he if you asked him what he stands for, he would probably be reasonably opposed to the state having control over decisions about your body. Your body, right. And and yet he's been embraced by the American right. And I think that's they've come, they've come to recognize thing. that he is, he's a problematic <laughs> spokesperson. Yeah, uh, I think you know. there, there's, yeah, the chances of him running for Congress from lower Manhattan are significantly lower now than they might have been. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't want to focus exclusively on the baneful influence of the, of the policy. I mean, um, one story that, that I, I saw from Alexa I thought was really interesting uh, was that uh, the one-child policy has been something of a boon to girls. Yeah, that's right. really interesting. Half of undergrads, I think that's comparable to the United States, half of undergrads. I think probably oh, the U.S. is over, yeah, 50, over females half. Females in the U.S. have eclipsed 
Yeah. Right. But, but, but it's the more interesting ever gotten to in China. Right? Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. more interesting was 47% of graduate students, which I'm sure is higher than in the United States. Uh, um, I, I no. 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 In the U.S., there are more female grad graduate students. students. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know if that's just masters or PhDs. It but yeah, it's it's shifted incredibly in the U.S. Oh wow, yeah. that's that's great to hear too, and that's good news. But um, and that's not because of one maybe maybe it's good. I don't know. I mean, it's 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 Depends an interesting what, shift. Depends and what you think graduate school does for you, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, what I, happens I, I when they go into the your part, yeah. the workforce and. Um, you know, and people talk about left behind boys now and concern that, you know, that boys can't compete in this kind of environment and the, that things have changed and they're, they're worried about the boys. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, always gonna we'll be see how it pans something. out. So, I mean, uh, what, are, what are some of the other, I mean, if there are any other positive outcomes of, of the one child policy? Right. Well, this was sort of a bit of a revelation to me when I, I, I was at, for years interviewing people about the one-child policy, and they would talk about how it had been a good thing for them, even though they'd kind of fought it and didn't maybe wanted to have more kids, but then in the long term realized that it was a benefit for them because they were able to have a you know more substantial career and they were able to spend more money on the kid that they had. Um, so when, I, when that finally sunk in, I realized that, that that was a really pretty fascinating outcome. Mm-hmm. But it's very controversial. I mean, people, I got a lot of um, backlash for yeah. that story. People were very upset. Right? Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, you're not allowed to say anything good about the one-child policy. That any, any sort of good outcome is not, is not enough to make up for its abuses. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, I would agree with that statement on its face. But um, it doesn't mean you oughtn't report it. I mean, Christ, it's fact. No, it's what makes it such an interesting story. I mean, right. I, I think it's exactly – and there were the cases that I remember I think you described of kids who would get opportunities that their their grandparents, for instance, would treat these granddaughters with great pride, and in the past they wouldn't have. I mean, right. these girls were getting into Tsinghua and Beida. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote about this girl, Mia Wong, who's just amazing. She's a Tsinghua student. And when she was born, her paternal grandparents were very disappointed mm-hmm. that she existed. And that that sort of played throughout her life, and she always uh, thought of her paternal grandmother in particular as someone who didn't have her back and who just was disappointed with her. Mm-hmm. And to to have her go back to her grandmother's house and and have her grandmother then brag to the other mm-hmm. villagers about the fact, oh, here's my granddaughter. She goes to Tsinghua, and it was a huge thing for her. It's a small farming village, um, and. That was uh, gratifying, but also there's still a lot of bitterness in that family. It doesn't just sort of go away. Can I ask a, a reporting mm-hmm. question just out of curiosity? I'm curious how you found them. It was a, an amazing story. I mean, I interviewed about 30 female students at Tsinghua. I mean, my dad teaches at Tsinghua, right. so I was able to, you know, sit in on some of his classes, but I also met with people outside of his classes, uh, um, girls, and just had a – I literally – created a questionnaire and said, can you fill this out? I just wow. want, I want to know, you know, how many kids are in your family, what education you have, what education your mom has, what education your grandmother had, wow, and story. to what wow. you attribute, you know, your success and was the one-child policy a part of that and so on. And the responses were all very similar, actually. Hmm. If it's a girl at Tsinghua, she's probably an only child. Right. And she probably has a, a mother who... Um, doesn't so there's it? lots of Mia Wongs. <laughs> there, there are a lot of Mia Wongs, but she was special because, well, she is special because she's a very charismatic person, mm-hmm. and she there were, but there were plenty of other you know candidates to choose from. Yeah. 
But she had a great story. There were a lot of Mia Wongs that never happened, especially in rural areas because of sex-selective abortion. Mm, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, about that, about efforts by authorities to prevent that from happening by banning sonograms. So you did another story uh, I saw about backseat uh, backseat sonograms right. that led inevitably to a lot of sex-selective abortions. Yeah. How did you get that story? Oh, that was a Xinhua pickup. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's something that local media, there was a campaign that I think started about a year and a half ago, a sort of accelerated campaign to crack down on sex-selective abortions. And uh, that's something that they're, they're having some success. I mean, they've got a long way to go. Um, but they, they are being very aggressive. And it's it's written in the law that you cannot do this. You can't find out the gender of your fetus and abort right. based on that. So the law is there, and now there's political will to actually start infor- to enforce it more aggressively. Okay, math question for you guys. Now, there is a, a famous the answer is zero. Google, <laughs> a famous Google uh, interview question. They say, in a hypothetical country, where uh, there's strict population control measures and where if you have a first child and that child is a girl, you may have a second child. After one generation, what would you expect the sex ratio to be in that country? And where you know, they have a preference for, for, for male children and we rule out sex life proportion. I've puzzled over this endlessly and I cannot figure out I, I'm no Isn't this a Baidu interview question as well? <laughs> it should be. I'm going to make it one, but I need to know the answer to it myself first. If there are listeners out there who actually know the answer to that, please post it on the podcast page. Uh, I, I, I've seen the question in a different form on Quora, but it's a famous question that, that they asked during Google interviews. Um, and it will be a famous question. We You're dealing, of course, you. with two writers here. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was it repeated again? So yeah. I'm so, not okay. quite that I understand. Do you have to The question is, does, I mean, the, the, the real world question is, uh, does the policy of allowing people to have a second child if the first child is a female, does that skew the gender balance? Mm-hmm. Yes. I would think so. Intuitively, my, my answer would be yes, but I Because you're saying that if in families that have a boy child, then they don't get to have a second That's child right. at all. So then I think it probably does skew the gender ratio. Okay. Um, that, well, what's, what's interesting is that when people have – that if you just separate out first child – first children, second children, and third children, and you look at the gender disparity in China, that it goes – it actually becomes more skewed to the second and third kids. Mm-hmm. So if the first children tend to be – the ratio is more natural. But then if they have a second child, they're going to more aggressively try and get the outcome that they want. Uh-huh. So you're, you're more likely to test and to correct for, if you oh, want yeah. to call it that, uh, if it's your second or third child. In, in, in this thought experiment, we're supposed to leave that mm. out. But actually, I, I just solved it myself. Mm. Okay, so the first, the first go, you have, let's say, I mean, I know it's 51, 49, but let's say it's 50, 50. Mm-hmm. And then only the one group of people who had a, a female child opt for a second. It's still going to be 50, 50 in, uh, for the second child. So the overall still remains at 50-50. Well, it's 110 to 100 because there are boys right, and more Right, 110 to 100. Yes, yeah. but, but I mean, assuming that it was... Right. Uh, anyway, enough math. I'm very, very bad at this stuff. Um, what are the best ways for China to go forward and to relax the policy? I mean, I, I worry that a sudden lifting of it, it would create a, 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 a disruptive population bulge, no, wouldn't it? I mean, is, is there... I think a, it's reasonable. Maybe I mean, not. <laughs> if you look at places where they are allowed to have two kids and people are not having two kids. Right, but if it were nationwide <clears> and sudden, would would there not suddenly be a... There might be a lot of people who have two or three kids and there might be a lot of people who have no kids. 
I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not sure that that's. You assume that that would be the case because there would be this great like, oh, we can have as many kids as we want, or you know, if they had a two or three child policy instead. But I, I'm not sure from talking to demographers. Their impression is, based on the experiments and based on the economy, people would not have more. I mean, you hear so much about the costs of having a child now and how prohibitive those are in a place, in a big city. Right. I mean, if you have to think about school fees and then if you have a boy, you have to think about buying a house and a car before that kid wants to get married so that they can have a reasonable shot on the marriage market. Ha, my boy's buying his own. And on top of that, you know, your boy Johnny's going to face a statistical problem, which is that there is this glut of boys. And but you've this, seen my, my boy Johnny. He's you know, doing fine. He's not going to have any problems with ladies. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, but his throw, sad little friends are going to have a problem. That's right. The guangwur, so the there's bare all branches. There's bare branches on the family trees. There's all these boys out there. And there's, I mean, by the end of the decade, this is not an abstract problem. No. By the end of this decade, there's going to be 24 million men who are not going to be able to find wives. That I mean, that's picture that. That's a couple of New York City's worth of men walking around pissed off. Well, I mean, so, so do they'll DC travel. and Ottawa. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they'll go to Vietnam and North Korea. Is what yeah. they'll do. Seriously. Yeah. Which doesn't promote exactly like healthy immigration policy. No. But I do think that I just mean that I think there are other pressures ultimately that will come to bear. So, as you were saying, Lex, I don't think it would necessarily be like day one of the new policy. Everybody goes out and has as many kids as they can. Yeah, I don't. My impression is that that wouldn't be the case. But in terms of how should how should China or should China relax the policy, um, a lot of demographers that I've spoken to, their impression is they will not announce it. That they are they're relaxing it. They're just not telling you. Right. They're just going to stop enforcing it. And have you know in some places you know uh, they no, that's, that's they clever. could fine you more, but they're fining you less, um, mm. and they're looking the other way. And so. It's it's loosened up a lot, and it's just it's not going to be a policy announcement. Okay. Well, on that relatively happy note, let's move on to the segment of the show where we make recommendations of things. I was thinking about it on the way over here. Uh, is a great story by Keith Gessen in the New Yorker on the subject of traffic and mm. the existential crisis facing Moscow because its traffic has become so severe that the city has more or less ground to a halt. And the story is, is almost not relevant to Moscow. It doesn't matter that it's Moscow because what he's really talking about is this problem that confronts big cities like Beijing. I remember that story. I mean, he talks to the guys at Yandex, right? Uh, the, the big Russian yeah, search the, engine. Right. He, well, actually, I don't know. He talks to the ones... He, talk, he goes to the sort of... There's this brain, this big sort of nerve center that keeps an eye on traffic in Moscow, and it has more or less thrown up its hands and said <laughs> that this is an organism that is beyond our control. And I was thinking of it today as I was making my way over here on my... On my bicycle, which is a story for another day. I've moved from the electric bike to the human power. Yeah, I'm devolving. My my electric bike just went kaput today, and so I I hurried over. Yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't go this morning. Wow, we may be the leading edge of something. I know. I'm going to buy another one, I think. Um, Alexa, are you ready with a recommendation? Well, I have something that's on my wish list. Um, I haven't actually yet read, but I've been. It's been recommended to me many times. On Natural Selection by Mara Fistendahl. Mm. Um, oh yeah, It's yeah, supposed yeah. to be a great book, and it's. I love germane. her. Her stuff yeah. is great. Her stuff is great. Like, uniformly really great. And I think I believe she's back in Beijing. Oh good. She's reporting from here. Um, Mara, so. if you li- are you listening, get in touch. We want to put you on the show. Yeah, absolutely. She'd be great, and her book is doing fantastic. Fantastically, uh, selling really well, and it's—I think it's won at least one award, maybe more. 
Um, I was also a finalist for the Pulitzer, I think. Oh, great! Oh, great! 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 Well deserved. Well deserved. I mean, she's written on all sorts of terrific topics on on hackers. On yeah, she's a great science writer. Writes really well on technology and. Uh, I'm yeah, really, she's yeah, really good. That will go on my wish list as well. The title of the book? Uh, Unnatural Selection. Unnatural Selection. And it's right. about the right. sex ratio problem. Yeah, a very, mm-hmm. very topical issue. Okay, so mine is um, I, I, a podcast that I absolutely adore, This American Life. Um, listen to it this weekend. I, I believe that, that it's going to be about Americans in China. And you may hear some familiar voices on it. Uh, so please give it a listen. You know, Mike Meyer is going to be one of the subjects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, some other people you may have heard. So, uh, thanks again, Alexa. Thanks Thank for coming you, in. Kaiser. Good to see you. Thanks, Kaiser. Uh, yeah. Uh, good luck with all your talks this weekend. And uh, we will see you again next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care. Mm-hmm.